Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Eat to Perform podcast. I'm Dr. Brad Dieter, and today I'm going to be your host. And we have an awesome guest on the show today. This is somebody that I've been, you know, really hoping to talk to for several years. And it's just a, it's a treat and a pleasure to have him. He's kind of what I like to call the, the king of hypertrophy and one of the leaders in the fields of, you know, applied exercise science research. So and without further ado, welcome to the show, Brad. Um, we're glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know a little bit about your background too, and kind of you know where you've come from, and how that shapes your perspective today. Sure, I think one of the things that makes me somewhat unique in what I'm doing now as a researcher educator is that I uh, I started out as a personal trainer and spent many years in that venue. So really, my um, I come from being a practitioner, and really all what I'm doing now is guided by my work as a practitioner in a previous life at this point, uh, where I would have questions that I would always want to have answers. And once I started really getting into research, I just saw how really barren the literature is on so many topics that were of interest to me, that are practical topics. I think the, um, the nature of research often is to look at basic research mechanisms and other factors. But in terms of some of the meat and potato stuff, it really was quite barren. So with that said, I, I uh, became a trainer. I started getting into fitness uh, right out of college and um, took to it very readily. Uh, from there, I went on and uh, started training people, um, developed a, a, a clientele, very um, loyal clientele, opened up my own private facility, a training facility. And from there, I started getting the bug to go back and get my master's degree got uh, involved in teaching and then uh, decided to go on for my uh, PhD and become a uh, full-time educator researcher. So Brad, you know, one of the really unique things about you is that, you know, your research is quite extensive and you've begun to unravel some of the key questions around hypertrophy. You know, what can you tell us about what you have learned about, you know, volume, intensity, frequency, and rest intervals in relation to hypertrophy and, and some of those findings that you found that have been a little bit surprising and just kind of walk us through a little bit more about, you know, the research that you've been doing lately. Yeah, so some of the uh, traditional guidelines that have been discussed, uh, we've now started to learn they're not quite as clear as we, as had been promoted. So one, one of my main hobby horses has been repetition ranges, school loading zones, looking at the Typical hypertrophy uh, loading zone repetition range has always been thought to be 6 to 12 reps and to maximize muscle, you'd want to train in this bodybuilding uh, style uh, of training, repetition loading. And what we're learning, and I've carried out now multiple studies on this topic, is that really training through a wide spectrum of repetition ranges, provided there is sufficient volume uh, within the, the loading zones, can produce substantial hypertrophy and, and rather similar effects on muscle. Um, and that includes very light weights. Uh, one of my studies, or actually a couple, have looked at the 25 to 35 repetition range, which is very, as you know, very high, and, and often uh, promoted or preached that it was insufficient to, to build muscle. And uh, what we're finding out is that you get robust hypertrophy through a spectrum of loading ranges. And there's uh, some speculation now that I have that combining these loading zones actually can maximize the response, that having some lower repetition uh, zone training 
moderate repetition zone training and high repetition zone training. In certain, we don't know the exact mix, maybe having a, theoretically, I would say having more of the 6 to 12 rep as using that as your base and then adding in your higher and your lower repetition range training uh, would uh, ultimately maximize the hypertrophic response. So to me, that's that was a biggie. And, and this is not just in newbies. Uh, my research generally is carried out in uh, trained, well-trained individuals that have um, usually on average several years training experience, two to three days a week of training for several years. So these aren't bodybuilders per se, but they are well-trained subjects who aren't just getting newbie gains. And that was originally hypothesized by me. Uh, I, I tend to prove myself wrong in my hypotheses a lot because I had thought when I saw some of the early research on um, in the or recent research uh, by Stu Phillips lab has done some as well as some other groups showing that this high rep training can actually promote roughly equal muscle growth. I thought it was newbie gains. I figured that it was just these guys would, they can get uh, jacked on cardio if they haven't done anything. And, and ultimately in, in well-trained subjects, we're finding that that's not the case, that they can get very robust growth from high rep training. So certainly that's one of them. You know, it's funny, Brad, you bring up a, a really awesome point there about how, you know, some of your, your thoughts that you've kind of proven wrong yourself, and that's something I want to circle back to you and talk about that in the context of science a little bit more. But, you know, what you're kind of telling me is that there's a lot of individual variation between subjects um, within your, your studies, which I think is a really underappreciated aspect of the research. And, you know, one question I would ask is, did you notice anything in your studies about, you know, maybe some people responding um, a little bit better towards low rep, um, high weight ranges versus higher rep, low weight ranges. And do you think that there might be some sort of bimodal distribution in which, you know, some people perform better in a hypertrophy sense um, working in one rep range versus the other rep range? Do you have any ideas or thoughts that you can comment maybe on, you know, different phenotypes in response to exercise like that? You see, that I couldn't comment on because we don't, I haven't done crossover work to, to try to ascertain that. That certainly is an interesting hypothesis. Uh, there are, there's some interesting work um, with gene expression uh, and certain genes, like there's the ACE gene, uh, the angiotensin uh, gene, uh, converting enzyme gene, has been shown to have strength effects on higher versus lower volumes of training. So certainly there's a, a basis towards thinking that, that it could be gene uh, related, or it even could be a fiber type related. People that have higher proportions of type 1 versus type 2 fibers might. These are all hypotheticals that I couldn't address. But to your first point, which is really important and something that's been very eye-opening to me as a researcher, when, when you actually carry out controlled studies, uh, where I'm actually, obviously I saw a wide range as a practitioner, you'll see very large inter-individual differences, but it's not in a controlled you're not doing this in a controlled fashion, so the routines are somewhat different. Um, the you're, you're not using measurement tools that are very precise. I mean, I'm using ultrasound where I'm getting a clear picture of muscle thickness. You're we're measuring, actually measuring muscle growth, uh, somewhat directly measuring muscle growth, and seeing that with the exact same routine, you're getting very different responses. And what's even, to me, even more interesting is that one subject might be getting better response in their leg muscles and another one might be getting better responses in their arm muscles. So they, one subject might get almost zero growth in their leg muscles from a given routine while another one gets 10% gains and vice versa in the arms. The same person 
versus the other person had the exact opposite in their arm. So it's really interesting and it does um, point to the fact, or at least uh, to me highlights the fact that we can only go by, um, we can only use research to guide us and then you have to use your own ingenuity and look at the individual you're training and then adjust it based on their response. So training, an evidence-based approach, is one of my big hobby horses is evidence-based training. Evidence-based training is not just looking at research. Research uh, is used as a guiding force, but ultimately we must uh, use our harness, our own personal expertise, and then look to the individual and make adjustments because the research is giving you means. It's what you're doing is you're getting, uh, you're making decisions based on the averages of how people respond, and there are high and low responders. You know, Brad, that's such an awesome point that you bring up, and that, you know, really what evidence-based research is is kind of this marrying of the, the literature and the research, also with, you know, a lot of our personal experience, because I think sometimes we, we underappreciate that aspect of things. Um, you know, one of the, the questions I would have, just to, because we have a lot of people who listen to the show, and I'd love to kind of give them some insights of, of general principles and things, is, you know, are there any kind of general guidelines that you can kind of put forth for people um, in which they can kind of operate under a framework um, that are good guidelines for them to operate in terms of kind of optimizing hypertrophy or places they can start? When you're saying general principles, I'm not following. You mean... Yeah, let me kind of uh, rephrase that. You know, are there, are there any just very sound fundamentals idea that we know to be true, kind of holding all things constant? You know, what are some some very basic guidelines that you can give people who are starting in the, the hypertrophy scheme or people who are trying to build muscle or things like that? What are some overarching principles you've found from your research? Well, there, there's very clear evidence of a dose-response relationship. It's compelling. And anyone who says otherwise is just not, to me, uh, missing the boat. They're not looking at the research objectively. Um, and by the way, along those lines, you can look at single, one of the issues with resistance training uh, studies in general is that they are inevitably underpowered, uh, statistically uh, underpowered, so that you're, it's difficult to find what's called a significant effect, which is a 95 plus percent confidence that the results aren't due to chance. And some researchers, or I don't even want to say researchers, but people in the field, because some of them aren't don't even produce research, they just critique it. Uh, but some people in the field have used that as a, 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 cunningly used that to say, well, there's no difference between, let's say, single sets and multiple sets. Uh, and that is misleading because it doesn't say that. It says that these studies did not have the statistical power. Maybe it would say that, but if you actually look at the body of literature and, um, and pull that as we have done, uh, that is not what the literature really shows when you do things like meta-analyses where you can derive greater statistical power from a large body of research. There's a clear dose-response relationship. And I will say I don't even like to look at it single sets versus multiple sets. Really, we want to look at volume over the course of a week. Uh, like weekly volume is a, a better indicator because if you did one set every day, that would be different than doing one set twice a week. Um, you know, you could, so it's really accumulating volume and I'm not saying you'd want to necessarily train every day anyway, there might be, there potentially could be downsides to that. But um, bottom line is you have to look at what the total volume is per week. Now, if you're again asking for uh, what someone should do, we, we can give general guidelines, but they will vary widely. So I, um, now 
based on some of the work that we have been doing and, and looking at the data, um, I would say that 10 plus sets per muscle group per week, uh, somewhere in that range, 10 or more, uh, would be generally beneficial to maximizing a hypertrophic response. Now, I will say you can get robust hypertrophy from doing far less than that. But if we're talking about maximizing, you can substantially increase your, your gains. Now, does that mean that everyone will... There, will there be people that might do five sets uh, per muscle group in a week and still see the same gains as if they would do 10? Inevitably, I'm sure that is the case. So this is where, like I said, I, I can't give you something that everyone should be doing. And that's everyone wants that cookie-cutter prescription. And that is not what an, a sign... A applied science like exercise, you can't give those type of, of cookie cutter prescriptions. And, and those who try to do that really are doing a disservice. I can give general guidelines, and I say this in the books that I've written, that here is a template. And from the template, you have to see how your, your training goes and then adjust it based upon your response. Um, you know, just to kind of switch veins here a little bit and to circle back to something we talked to earlier is, you know, I think that you and I both share a common love and appreciation of the scientific method of inquiry. And I know that sometimes as scientists, we're viewed as people who, you know, think we always have the right answer. We're never wrong. Now, I know that personally, from my own experience, there's so many things that I've changed my view on in the past decade as I can turn, continue to learn and grow and as more data becomes available. You know, can you share with us something that you've changed your view on during the course of your career and um, anything that you know you thought was true and then you found some data that really challenged your viewpoint and you kind of changed your stance on something? Well, I mentioned before the uh, high reps was one that just really was uh, a big eye-opener for me because I had always thought it was pretty much a waste of time to train with anything over about 12, 12 RM. Uh, so that was certainly a biggie. Um, uh, there's just been so many that you, you need to do a split routine to maximize growth. I've done uh, some work recently on frequency where get really uh, tremendous growth from doing total body routines three times a week. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily how you want to train all the time, but uh, I would have thought early on in my career that a um, a split routine, bro split, would be would have blown away a total body routine. Really, it's not the case. Um, I was pretty convinced that you needed to train with shorter rest intervals uh, to maximize muscle growth. And recent work that I've done shows that is not the case. In, in effect, in actuality, uh, somewhat longer rest intervals have better responses. I was a big, uh, I thought based on early research, and look, we, all, we can only go by the evidence you have at the time, but I thought based on early research that jacking up hormones um, acute, the acute hormonal response of growth hormone, IGF-1, testosterone post-workout was a big driver of hypertrophy. And uh, recent work that I've seen, and uh, I've actually written a position paper on this or a, a review paper on this, uh, saying that if it does have any uh, influence, and that's not even clear, uh, it would be a small influence. It would be very modest. So, so many things. I, I'm constantly uh, changing my opinion. Uh, to quote my good friend Brett Contreras, who quoted his uh, PhD uh, supervisor, John Cronin, I go by the adage that this is what I know today, but I reserve the right to change my opinion tomorrow based upon new research that comes out. You know, and I think this is a perfect segue into my next question. It has to deal with, you know, one of the papers that you published in the last few years with, uh, with Alan and James that's been, you know, circulated very heavily through social media, through the press, um, 
And it's on the idea of nutrient timing. And I think your study, your meta-analysis was a little um, taken out of context for some people. And, and it's been perceived as a paper that says, you know, there's, there's no point of post-workout nutrition and it doesn't matter at all. And, you know, I would love to just kind of hear from you your perspective. I know my perspective on it was a little bit different and more nuanced than that. But I'd love to hear from you, you know, after all this research on, you know, the post-workout window and all these things, um, could you tell me a little bit, you know, from your perspective, what you think on that topic, you know, after viewing all this research in this literature, um, what do you think about the whole post-workout thing? Yeah, so it, the paper has been taken very much out of context by a lot of people. Now, there is, without question, nutrient timing matters. So if you were not to eat for 18 hours after a workout, I would pretty much guarantee you're going to suppress your gains, that you're, you're going to lose out. Uh, what the meta-analysis, I think, showed, in my humble opinion, was that there is not really this narrow, you don't need to be super anal that there's this narrow anabolic window and that if you don't slam a shake the minute you're, or, or within a half hour after your, uh, your session is done, that you're all going to lose all your gains or you're going to start to even lose your gains at that point. That uh, really we need to start thinking of, of this more in terms of the peri-workout period, which is the time around the workout. And you want to look at when you had your meal before the workout and then within that context, that can give you some idea as to when you'd need to replenish after without having to worry about losing much. Um, and that, based upon other work that, I've, uh, that Alan and I have done, we did a uh, review paper uh, for, I, for the JISSN called Nutrient Timing Revisited, and, um, which is free for everyone to read, and I encourage them to read it. We hypothesized that the window was probably four to six hours, somewhere in and around the workout. So if you have, let's say, a meal two hours before a workout, then have an hour workout. So you're now at three hours, probably within a couple hours after that, you'd want to get a, another meal in. Now, if you're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're pretty much always going to be within your anabolic window, unless you're eating after dinner. Uh, I mean, unless you're training after dinner, uh, in which case you might want to have another shake, I guess, uh, conceivably. Um, but other than that, it really is, uh, it's kind of superfluous to, to think about needing to, to have a meal, a post-workout meal, because you're always going to be within that period of time where you're, uh, where you're within your anabolic window. Yeah, you know, obviously you're the author of the paper, so um, you've, you've been pretty close to this. And I think that's pretty much the perfect interpretation of the data and the fact that, you know, really what it tells us is, this, this anabolic window is not as, you know, narrow or as strict as we thought and that, you know, you don't really need to be so stressed out about the, the post-workout nutrition. Um, it's more of, you know, the context of the overall diet. Now, what about, you know, people who train for two-a-days or, you know, people who train in the morning and then at night? You know, what is your thoughts on, do you think post-workout nutrition is important for people like that or even in, you know, in the context of competition where, um, you need to kind of maximize recovery pretty quickly. What are your thoughts on um, that aspect of post-workout nutrition? Uh, well, no, I, I would think that um, if you're doing two-a-days, there can be a greater benefit towards uh, having a, a abrupt, you know, a quick post-workout um, shake, and that would include carbohydrate. Now, the extent of... So this now will then depend upon what muscles you're going to be training. If you're going to be 
let's say doing uh, back work and then coming back to do biceps work later where your biceps would have been taxed sufficiently, then yeah, I think uh, it might be very important then to make sure you're not only getting the protein, but especially uh, some carbohydrate within you so that you can replenish your glycogen stores. Um, and there has been some good literature showing that if you train with in a glycogen depleted state, that it has negative effects on your workout routine. Now, if you're going to do an upper body workout in the morning and then a lower body workout in the uh, afternoon, evening, that would be diminished, of course, because you really haven't depleted those stores, uh, those glycogen stores. From a protein uh, perspective, um, I would say it's less so in that respect, because again, you, you're going to be getting your protein in. If you're doing a morning and evening, you would be having, assuming you have a lunch, uh, you'd be getting your post-workout meal in at some point anyway. So uh, the need to do it quickly is not as big an issue. But from a glycogen repletion standpoint, there is good evidence that uh, because of the upregulation of glycogen synthase, which is the enzyme that stores glycogen, it's very, um, it's very much upregulated immediately after workout and delaying glycogen, uh, delaying glucose intake post-workout will delay the rate of glycogen repletion, and thus you're not going to have as much glycogen restored. So how much will that affect your evening workout if you delayed it by several hours? Tough to say in terms of, of the performance effect. We could say how much roughly it would affect it. You know, if it has, let's say, affects it by half, will that have a uh, major effect on your workout? That's tough for me to say, but I, I would say it would be beneficial certainly at that point to, uh, to have a, a shake including carbohydrate. So the, uh, the next topic I'd like to ask you about is, is a little bit more selfish and um, kind of where I'm at in my life, life and my career. You know, you're, you've just started not too long ago as a, as a professor um, in New York, and, and you're running your own lab. And I think people often underappreciate the amount of work that goes into putting a study, and you're probably one of the most, if not the most prolific researchers in our field, you ask Know, really great practical questions. You have obviously a great team of people you work with, and you've transitioned into this new role. You know, I'd love to hear from you what your experience has been like and, and how you've been able to handle all these new challenges and these new things and some of the aspects of research that most people don't know about. I'd just love to hear your take. Yeah, I'll start off by saying that uh, I have the best job in the world, in my opinion, for me at least. It's uh, the most rewarding and fulfilling job I could ever hope for. Uh, so I basically I get up every morning and I'm jacked to go to work. So uh, I, I love every minute of what I'm doing. I had sold... Uh, now, four years ago, four plus years ago, I sold my private, I had a private training facility that I ran for many years, and I sold it uh, to become full-time faculty and um, couldn't be happier. So um, I loved what I did back then, but this is just my passion now and, and really what is what floats my boat. That said, there were huge challenges. If you're talking about specifically carrying out research studies, the longitudinal research studies are stressful as hell um, because... Number one, you have to, now I deal with um, my studies, almost all of them involve well-trained subjects. So that was one of my, uh, one of my big things when I got into research was saying that, oh, look, all these studies out there are generally conducted in these untrained individuals. And we know that the initial response to training is, is highly neurally activated. And uh, there's big differences between what well-trained uh, people who have been training for several years plus will experience versus those who are new to training. 
And I vowed that I was going to start to add to the literature in, in well-trained subjects, and I have. Um, but number one, it's difficult to find those subjects. So the recruiting aspect, and, and part of what, what you have to understand in, in my line of work, I have to get a study finished within a 15-week semester. It's, the semester is actually 16 weeks if you f factor in um, Thanksgiving holiday or, or spring break. So basically in a 16-week period, I have to get a 10-week study done. Uh, so my studies generally run 10 weeks. It's eight weeks of the actual training, and then you have the two weeks on either end for testing, for pre and post testing. Um, so you've got to get these subjects in, it, recruited, and I have great, really give a big shout-out to the never-ending sea of um, interns that I have in my exercise science program. Uh, I wish I could keep some of them. Unfortunately, they end up graduating, and I have to get new ones to, to carry the foot the bell. But they do a great job in recruiting, but it's not easy, and, and you're always worried that if you don't get the uh, enough people, you're not going to have the statistical power in the study to do what you want to do um, or, or to get the proper information, and, and thus it would compromise your study to, to get the results that you need. Uh, that's number one. Number two are dropouts, so you have to always get um, a lot more subjects than you need from a power perspective to ensure that when the inevitable dropouts occur uh, that you'll still have statistical power. And some studies, you get very few dropouts. It's tough for me to envision to know why a lot of times. But I, I mean, I had a study recently. We recruited 30 subjects. I ended up with 19 finishing the study. So 11 dropouts, um, where other studies have only had three or four dropouts. Um, so that gets very um, stressful, trying to get people to uh, fill out their food diaries, just ridiculously hard. And you realize, by the way, I, I have realized how almost, I don't want to say useless, but how very limited the use of food diaries is in terms of extrapolating what people really do. Um, I use that. I do it because it's kind of required and you want to get some sense, I guess, better than nothing. Um, but some of the things that these people write, these subjects write down, I, I, I'm like, there's no way you're doing this. I get, I get jacked. 220-pound guys who are writing down they're eating 1,100 calories for over three days. You know, it's just, it's not not feasible. Um, and you know that even if it's feasible, they were doing that then, that does not represent their, um, their true eating habits. So that's a biggie, making sure they're not doing, I, you realize that you have, I can control everything that goes on once those subjects are in my lab and in the gym. Once they're out there, I can't tell you that they're not, Scarfing down supplements. I they tell me I, they swear to me they won't take supplements. Uh, do I can I vouch for that? We can't test that. You don't. I don't I'm not funded to uh, to put them through tests. Um, and even if you can, uh, they could do it and stop. It's and they wouldn't. It's just kind of silly. I'm saying they, it would just be silly to to try to get through to that uh, or, or to go over that. So so many factors you realize that you're you're limited on in terms of what you can extrapolate and it poses a lot of challenges to the researcher in terms of drawing evidence-based conclusions. Sounds like you've got a pretty crazy schedule and a lot of things going on, but you know, what are some of the big questions that you're trying to tackle um, in your lab and get answers to, you know, over the next few months or few years? I'd love to hear about that too. 
Oh, there's so many. So the I have one up that we're just going to be starting imminently, which is going to look at the determinants of uh, squat, 1RM squat strength. So we're going to look at biomechanical, psychological, and some other factors and, and look to see what are the, uh, the relevant uh, factors that most influence uh, squat strength. So we'll look at specific joints. We'll look at the knee versus the hip uh, joint versus back. Um, we'll look at various psychological determinants, et cetera. I'm going to do a dose-response uh, study uh, that's c coming up in a few months in well-trained subjects, which has not been done, which looks at one, we're going to look at one set versus three sets versus five sets three times a week, so really three sets per week versus five uh, versus nine sets versus 15 sets per week, um, which to me is another really important study. I'm going to be doing one on attentional focus that's going to look really at the mind-to-muscle connection to see what what, if any, influence that has on actual growth. We do know that it, um, it does increase muscle activation of given muscles, but the question is, does that translate into greater growth? I have a study coming up uh, in some months that will look at that. So uh, a bunch of them, and I have, right now I have about, on last count, I think 17 or 18 that are currently in review. So um, I'm collaborating with a huge number of a lot of different researchers and just have some really cool studies. I've made analyses out there. One of them's on resistance training frequency. So I'm collaborating with James Krieger on a lot of uh, these meta-analyses, looking at resistance training variables. We have one on protein timing, which looked at pre-timing immediately pre versus immediately post-workout, which is a really cool study. Um, another one on uh, non-equated uh, repetition ranges. Uh, one looked at three three sets of three versus three sets of ten, so just a lot of a lot of cool stuff. And uh, I'm collaborating with. Uh, I really owe so much to the people that I collaborate with, in terms of uh, furthering my ability to to put out some really great research. Brad, this has been an awesome conversation, and I'm just so thankful for having the time with you. And you do some seriously great work. Yeah, from your mouth to God's ears. So you know, I know that you're. You pump out a lot of content and you do a lot of really great work and people can find a lot of it. And, you know, being a, a very busy researcher yourself, you probably also have some, some need for some assistance and things like that, like you talked about. So where are some places that people can go to, to find your work, to contact you, um, maybe get interested in getting involved in some of your research in your lab? Where, you know, do you have a, a website or your Facebook page or what are some of the best ways that people can actually go ahead and contact you about your research or about um, getting involved in your lab. Yeah, I have a, uh, an active website, which is uh, lookgreatnaked.com. Now it's look great naked, not look good naked. Look good naked, I hear, is a porn site. So you might want to visit that too. That's that's up to you. But uh, mine is lookgreatnaked.com. And uh, I have a blog on there. And uh, you can contact me through my website. I'm also very active on social media, on Facebook, Twitter. And Instagram, they just uh, Google me or uh, go on, on the social media. They can find me and follow me on those sites. You know, it's been kind of a dream come true for me to sit down and talk with you. It's been wanting to do this for years. So thank you so much for your time, Brad. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, bud. And uh, since it's a Friday afternoon, we'll go ahead and let you go and, and have a great day. So we will talk to you later.